The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. It's a pleasure to be able to share the word again this morning with us. Just before we do so, I want to uh, share with you about uh, some of the plans that we are putting into place concerning the COVID-19 pandemic. We really anticipate that by September, we will have a clear understanding of how we can resume some kind of more of a group, a bigger group in this building. And so please stay tuned. There is a task force designated at studying this whole matter and making recommendations to us. And uh, God willing, we will uh, be able to put more people in here in September and, uh, and, and resume. But we continue to pray that God will give us wisdom about how to do ministry beyond Sunday. And there's another task force that is working on a, an initiative that has to do with building community uh, in the neighborhoods that we live in. And so pray that God will give us grace as we proceed. We're in the book of Genesis as we have been for about a year and uh, finishing off in the next uh, month. And uh, during our study of Genesis, we've been reminded that the, the Bible is a history book not just about any history, but about redemptive history. It's about following the holy seed of Abraham all the way to Jesus Christ. It is all about how God extends his arms to a sinful and rebellious people that, uh, that don't claim him, don't run to him. We who are part of that group... Uh, God is extending his arms to us, and he's calling us back to him, and he works with the raw material of our lives so that he, he can continue to redeem a people for his own possession. The incredible, incredible mystery of all of this is how God can save a people for his own possession that are so wicked. And so the day as we continue in, in Genesis we are reminded of some of the, the subplots we've been calling them. And remember that in the middle of Scripture, there's one main thought that God is pursuing all through the Word, but there are all these little plots, and we talked about that. We said that a plot is the main sequence of events in a story, and that is when we study Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and so on. And then there is the subplots, which are a line of action secondary to the main story. And, and the challenge of reading Holy Scripture is to remember to keep our eye on the, the main plot and to filter out sometimes some of the subplots so that we don't think they're the main idea. For they give context, they, give, they amplify the meaning of the main story, but they're not the main story. And so as we've been studying the patriarchs, we, we see indeed that in redemptive history that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah are key people, but there's loads of surrounding stories that we must understand, sift through to get to the big story. I can just imagine as I think about how the angels in heaven were looking down upon Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all through Scripture and they were looking down from heaven and trying to figure out how is it that this holy seed of redemption found in Abraham is going to get through all the mess that it has to travel through throughout history. Everything from dysfunctional families to enemies of God to sin, and today as we're going to see, famine. Famine that threatens to wipe out the, the very line of Jacob and his family. How will this holy seed find its way through? And so today we're going to be talking about how it is it that the patriarchal seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gets us all the way to Jesus Christ. 
And uh, we're going to start by studying Joseph again. And as you know, you, can, you heard in the children's moment that there's this theme of reconciliation. Joseph wants to be reconciled to his family. We, we believe that right up front. But how is it going to happen? And so the chapter begins in chapter 42. And Jacob and his family are in Canaan. The Egyptians have this incredible way of of preserving the food. God has given them wisdom to know how to preserve food for seven years of bounty and seven years of famine. And finally, Jacob just says, what are you standing here looking at each other for? I hear there's grain in Egypt. Go and, and get some. And he sends the ten brothers of Joseph, minus uh, Benjamin, of course, the youngest, and he sends them off on this trek. And it says in the scripture, so that we may live and not die, chapter 42, verse 2. That's a key phrase. That's a key phrase that's repeated throughout this whole narrative in the following chapters. That we may live and not die is repeated. And it's, in fact, a theme that we find in all of Scripture. If we were to go back to the Garden of Eden, you'll know that there were two trees in the Garden of Eden. There was the tree of life, and there was another tree that we could call the tree of death. Because, indeed, in the Scripture... God said to Adam and Eve, for in the, tr- the d- day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. We could have called the tree of life and the tree of death. These two themes of life and death begin right in the garden early before sin even came into the world. We see even going on at the end of the chapter, uh, end of Genesis, kind of going advancing forward. You know the story how Joseph, when he finally reconciles with his brothers, He says to them, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive and not die. This is the theme throughout all of Genesis. In fact, if we go to the end of the Pentateuch, the five books of the first five books of the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 15, we read in the scriptures, therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. Earlier on in that same verse, it says, I have set before you life and death. Choose life that you may live. Not only the Pentateuch, what if we were to go right to the end of the Old Testament, the very last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6, and we read in this scripture, and it's again a prophecy of John the Baptist who's coming to be a foreshadowing of Jesus, announcing his coming, and it says, lest I come and strike the land with a curse or a decree of utter destruction. God says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. And then we go to the very end of the Bible and we read in Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Later on in verse 17, it says that they let anyone who is thirsty come and let him who desires take the water of life. Life and death, cursing and blessing, good and evil. These are themes that are throbbing heartbeat through all of Scripture. We cannot get away from them. And all of them, of course, are designed to highlight the incredible giver of life, the one who, in whom all blessings flow, the one who has denounced the curse, reversed the curse, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the Savior. All of these scriptures are meant to highlight Jesus. 
for Scripture itself is Christocentric. And so today, let's take a look at how the portion that we're looking at today does this. And I'll start by describing redemption's problem. If you're in this room today and you don't have a sermon outline, the bulletins are on the back table. You can get up and go get one, and you can follow along and take some notes if you're interested. Redemption's problem, the seed of Abraham must live and not die. That's the theme. The question that we're answering is how is it that God's going to keep his promise to Abraham? They're about to die in Canaan because there's no grain. How is God going to do that? Well, we've been watching in the last few weeks about how God in his providence took Joseph to Egypt. How God in his providence allowed Joseph to become second in command in, under Pharaoh, interpreting his dreams for him. How God in his providence has given Jacob or Joseph this, this standing. And now through this famine, how God in his providence has brought his brothers to seek grain. It is an incredible story. And the scripture answers the question, how God's going to keep Jacob's family alive he had a plan. In chapter 42, the story begins to unfold, and you know it well. Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt, and they are brought into the very court of Joseph. He's at a distance, but they're brought into his very presence. With Egyptian makeup and clothing and gold, he looks different. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them right away. And it says in chapter 42 and and verse 9 that as soon as he saw his ten brothers bowing down before him, it made him think of a dream he had over a decade earlier, chapter 37. Do you remember the dream? Chapter 37, he goes and tells his brothers about these dreams that he had been having. He said that, I I had a dream where all of the sheaves, 11 sheaves, bowed down to me. I had a dream where the sun and the moon and the stars all bowed down to me. This this made his brothers so angry that they they wanted to kill him. Remember chapter 37? Instead, they sell him as a slave to the Midianites who take him and sell him as a slave to the Egyptians. You see... In, in even just seeing them bow down, he just, he just thinks of this dream. Here it is, actually coming to pass. They're bowing down before him. And I just wonder, if you just go with me for a moment in my imagination, what was in the mind of Joseph in that very moment when he saw his ten brothers come into his court and bow down? What was in his mind? I wonder... I wonder if he was praying. Because I believe that for for that whole 12 or 13 years, he had been waiting to be reconciled. He had been wondering how God would bring it about. I wonder if as soon as he saw them, that he just started making these whisper prayers up to God. God, what do I do? This 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 is incredible. Book by Elizabeth Elliot called God's Guidance. She says this, when asking God for guidance in some individual matter, it is a good thing to have as a background some inkling of the larger picture so that we see our own position in that perspective. I believe besides praying, 
I believe that Joseph was very mindful of his position by the grace of God to save his father and his family. I want you to know that I don't believe there was any revenge in the heart of Joseph throughout the narrative that we're going to be reading in the weeks to come. I don't believe there's any revenge in his heart. I believe he wanted to meet his younger brother who was just a little boy when he left. I believe he wanted to see his father's face again. His mother had already died. I believe he wanted to reconcile with his brothers. I believe that he wanted to see his brothers humbled before God so that they could also have a right relationship with the Lord because they were evil men. And so we see that I think he saw his place in the grand scheme of God's guidance upon him. The drama unfolds in chapters 42 to 45, and it reveals the main plot, but but most of it is just subplot. Most of the, the stuff we're reading in these weeks is subplot, pointing to a bigger picture, a bigger story, which I want to highlight today. How is the seed of Abraham going to live and not die? Let's move on to the second part of this, and that is that besides the problem of redemption, we look at the people of redemption. And I I subtitled this, The Brothers and Their Baggage, because really, if we take a look at the raw material that God had to work with in the plan of redemption, I mean, throughout the the whole scripture, do you not find your your sort of jaw drops sometimes as you're reading the Holy Bible? You're thinking, how is it that God could take these people and work with them? It gives me great hope to realize that if he can work with them, he can work with me if my heart is right and humble before him. And so we look at this, the scripture, and the question we're asking in the second point is, how is it that God is going to work with these people to bring about redemption? We find that in the narrative that we're reading, all 12 sons of Jacob are involved. They're kind of divided into two groups. There's the 10 brothers of Joseph, and then there's these two, ben- Benjamin and Joseph, the two sons of Rachel. It's even divided out further. In fact, let me just show you a picture of the 12 sons of Jacob. We see that they came from four women, two of the sisters, Rachel and Leah, as well as both of them having maidservants that that, uh, Jacob slept with and had children by. 12 sons of Jacob come about through this way. And the two sons of Leah that rise to the surface are Reuben and Judah. And of course, Rachel only had two sons, Uh, Joseph and Benjamin. And uh, of those, the two that rise to the surface to become principal characters in the scripture are Joseph and Judah. Joseph and Judah. Joseph who really creates the conflict of chapters 42 to 45 and Judah who resolves the conflict. And that's really what I want to focus on this morning. We will look at that in a moment, but first I want you to just see some of the history of these guys, these 12 sons of Jacob. For this is the raw material that God is working with, and believe me, it's an understatement to say they were far from angelic. They were far from being angelic. Let's confine our discussion to the first four sons of Jacob who all came through Leah. We are talking about Reuben, the firstborn, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Let's just talk about those four just for a moment. Reuben is remembered by stepping up 
in chapter 37 when his brothers wanted to kill him and his Reuben stepped up and rescued Joseph and, 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 and wanted to come back and free him from the pit that he was thrown in while his brothers were thinking it through. But when he came back, he'd already been sold as a slave to the Midianites. Reuben is the one in chapter 42 and verse 22 who feels conviction when Joseph confronts them. And he, he's the first one who feels like maybe God's getting back at us for killing or letting our brother be sold. Je- Reuben is the first one. Reuben's got a conscience. Reuben the eldest who felt responsible for his younger brothers. But Reuben made one big mistake. Reuben made the mistake that tainted his relationship with his father for the rest of his days. In chapter 35, verse 22, he slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, the mother of Dan and Naphtali. And that was a crime in those days. Obviously, he could have even been stoned to death for that. But more than anything, it was a challenge to his father's authority. It was uh, the eldest son trying to grasp for power over his father. And since Reuben's father, mother was Leah, not Rachel, he was already a second-class brother in the family. Do you see the family dynamic that's going on here? So therefore, he probably lived the rest of his days in a rather insecure relationship with his father, not feeling the security of his father's love. Next, we have Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi make, make famous in chapter 34. Remember the story of Dinah, the, the daughter of Jacob, who goes out and among the Canaanites, and the prince of Shechem notices her, and he violates her. And Simeon and Levi, as loyal brothers, go and they make a scheme, and they convince the, the men of, of, of this area, to, of that village, to all be circumcised and make an alliance with the Israelites. But while they are in the pain of circumcision in the aftermath, they go in with their swords and they kill all the young men of the village. Jacob hears about it and, of course, is angry because he's afraid of the reprisal of all the other Canaanite villages in the area. And so they move. They leave Canaan and they move away. But the the relationship with Simeon and Levi is already damaged. That brings us to the fourth son, Judah. Judah. He plays a key part in convincing his brothers not to kill Joseph, chapter 37, verse 26. He convinces them that they they can just sell him as a slave. But he is also far from righteous, as you know from chapter 38 when Doug referred to it. A few weeks ago, we read the story of how Judah found a wife from among the Canaanite peoples. And from that wife among the Canaanites, he had three sons. The first two sons, the Bible says to us, they were wicked in the sight of God, and God struck them dead. We don't know how, but these two sons were killed. That left the final son, who was a little boy at the time. And um, Judah made a promise to Tamar, the eldest son's widow, that when this boy grows up, she will be given in marriage to him. But until then, please stay in your father's house and be a widow. So she waits, she waits, she waits, she waits, and then the the man is now growing up and finds another wife. And Judah has not been true to his word. And so in a rather risky scheme, pretending to be a prostitute, hiding her identity with a veil, she lures Judah into bed with her one day, and he sleeps with her, 
And later on, Judah is told that her da- his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he judges her. She's going to be stoned and until she sends to Judah a, pe- a few pieces of personal items that he left behind. And he said, the, the woman, the man that I'm pregnant with is the owner of these items. And he realizes he is the father. And then he recants, he repents, he realizes that she is more righteous than he. She bears twin boys, and those boys, Perez and Zerah, uh, become, well, Perez is a forefather, an, an ancestry of Jesus. He is the, in the line of Christ. And so here we see Judah not also being a very righteous man, and yet, In the midst of this mess, God chooses to put his grace on Judah and use him. What an incredible story. Let's move on to talk about Judah more. So the question then in the third point is redemption's pledge. How is it exactly that God is going to redeem and it's a picture that's found in this story of Joseph and the famine is a picture of how God is going to redeem through Jesus years and years later. We've answered the question, how is God going to keep his promise to Abraham so that the seed would not live, would live and not die? We've answered the question, how is God going to fulfill his purposes through an unruly group of, of those sons of Jacob? It's through his grace alone. And now we answer the question, how is he going to specifically do it to, peop- to save a people that really would be lost forever? And the answer is, he is going to do it by making a pledge and by becoming a substitute. And that is what happens, you'll notice, in the Scripture. In chapter 43, in verses 8 and 9, we read these words. Judah said to his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones, and I will be a pledge of his safety. It's a stroke of irony that the same word pledge is used of what Judah did with Tamar in leaving some personal belongings behind, as is the word that he uses in regards to the salvation of his family. Judah's pledge convinces their father to let Benjamin, the youngest son of Rachel, go with the brothers to Egypt. And it is Judah as well who draws near to Joseph when he is about to continue the charade of judging them. And finally, in chapter 44 and verse 18, we read about the fact that Joseph explains the entire story to the Pharaoh. To, sorry, to uh, Judah explains the entire story to Joseph. And let me just read to that part. In chapter 44, verse 32, he says, Your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. And so he offers himself as a substitute. Let the boy go free. Let him return to his father. Put me in prison. Let me be your servant. I'll be his substitute. And so Joseph is is cut to the heart in this moment. Joseph finally, Judah's story, Judah's substitution, Judah's the one that finally resolves the problem. Joseph is cut to the heart, 
and he finally asks everyone to leave the courtroom except his brothers. And he takes off some of that Egyptian garb and he says, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. Incredible. And reconciliation begins. And we're going to come to those stories in, in, the, in a couple of weeks as well. We're going to continue that. But this is the big theme, that Judah is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. That's the big idea. That's the main plot in this entire story. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus in four ways. I want to say this morning that, first of all, Judah is a foreshadowing of Jesus because he's a representative of humanity that dies in our place. The second, the last Adam. This first Adam did not accomplish what he was to do, but the last Adam, Jesus, he has become a life-giving spirit, Paul says in Corinthians. I like what Major Ian Thomas says. He says, for the first time since Adam fell into sin, there was on earth a man as God intended man to be. Praise God. That, that's, the, that's the point is that there was only one ever, only one human ever in all of humanity that could be our representative before a holy and righteous God. And the only human that could do that was God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, is that God provides the representative that we needed for humanity. And it's also God's Son who is the pledge giver. God's Son is the one who is the guarantor, the surety. God's Son is the one who became the perfect sacrifice. God's Son, Jesus, is the one who comes into the courtroom and you and I are standing accused before the judge in the courtroom and God's Son is our defense attorney. And God's Son, Jesus Christ, comes before the judge and, and pledges himself to be the solution, to answer the, 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 the call, to, to be the one who pays the penalty for whatever crime has been found that sticks to the accused. That's why in the Bible, in John 17, when Jesus is praying that high priestly prayer, he says, he says, I have kept them in your name and I have not lost any one that you have been given me and I have guarded and not lost one of them. That's what Jesus prays. This is before the cross because he's pledged himself to do so. In fact, just after that in chapter 17, verse 19, he says, for their sake, talking about you and I, I consecrate, I pledge myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see, before the cross came, before you and I were even on this earth, Jesus Christ had pledged himself to die. And like Judah as well, Jesus is our intercessor. Like Judah stood before Joseph alone and interceded on behalf of all of his family, Jesus is the one who stands before the Father, Romans 8, 34. He's praying for us. Right now, right now as I'm talking to you, right now as you're sitting at home, if you're sitting at home today, right now as we are together, Jesus Christ is the one interceding for us on, on our behalf before the Father. 
It says in 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate is parakletos. It means the one who has come alongside of you to help you. It's the word lawyer. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He doesn't come against you, friend. He comes alongside of you. If you will submit to Jesus Christ, if you will recognize his lordship in your life, that you were created by him and you've been redeemed by him, that you, you are owned by him twice in that way, if you will let him come alongside of you, he will be your substitute. He will take the blame and he will set you free. He can do that. And that's the last thing, is that he's not only our representative, our pledge giver, our intercessor, he is our substitute. Just like Judah was willing to be a substitute for Benjamin, he's our substitute. The the word of God teaches this in so many passages. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Substitution. And then Hebrews 7.22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, for he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is able to save completely those who draw near to him. I trust that this morning as you hear this this picture in dramatic form, in narrative form of Judah's role at the time of the famine, I trust that as you see in Judah this foreshadowing of Jesus, that you recognize that, that God's big story in his book is all about redemption. It's all about saving a people who don't deserve it, like you and I, and bringing us to salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have been sitting in your word this morning and looking again at this old story, We have been reminded, O God, that the scripture throbs with the centrality of your son, Jesus, the glory of all glories. And Lord, we come to you and we want to let him have his way in our lives. Jesus, we want you to be our all in all. And we recognize, God, that we get so distracted with all the stuff in our lives, in the the subplots of our lives, we forget the main plot The main, the big idea, God, is for us to know you, who is life eternal. We pray, oh, Lord, draw us to you. Thank you, Jesus, for the incredible salvation that you bought us as a substitute. May we glorify you in our lives through Christ. Amen. Lord God, thank you for meeting us here today. We thank you for the victory that you have won for us. We thank you for the reconciliation that you have granted us. We thank you for for the main plot. We thank you for the purpose of life that we get to know you and we get to enjoy you because of what you've done. God bless each one. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.